Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 80 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions' industry-leading Evo shared storage servers come with a perfect suite of core features you'll love, like built-in media asset management and powerful integrations for Adobe, Resolve, Avid, and FCP10. They've even made it easier to work from home with their new remote editing tool, Nomad. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and sign up for a demo today. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Jonah Moran about editing Disney Plus's filmed theatrical version of the hit musical Hamilton. Working closely with The Cabinet, Hamilton's cadre of creatives, including creator Lin-Manuel Miranda, director Thomas Kael, and choreographer Andy Blankenbuehler, among others, editor Jonah Moran shaped multiple performances into a single, seamless filmed experience. Moran's background includes episodes of FX's Fosse Verdon, Nat Geo's Mars, and ESPN's 30 for 30. This in-depth discussion includes how to balance wide shots, crucial to appreciation of the choreography, with close-ups of emotional moments, how to make this filmed version its own unique screen experience of the show, but also a document of the show itself, and how to know when what might be the most beautiful shot in the entire show must be sacrificed on the altar of story. And be warned, this musical is based on historical fact, not to mention that it's a Broadway musical that premiered five and a half years ago, so I didn't really worry about spoilers during the interview. We'll start the discussion about editing Hamilton with a question about his understanding about the reasons for the art of the theatrical version, and even the deeper story of Alexander Hamilton's life and how that affected his editing. There's a really beautiful book that they put out as part of all of this called, I think, Hamilton the Revolution. And that was my Bible. It has all the lyrics on like beautifully printed photos. And I would just go there. And then it has like uh, little annotations that Lynn included of like, this is what I was going through here. I wrote this here. I was thinking this here. This is that. And you're just like, this is uh, Cliff's notes for my entire job right now. And I really appreciate that. Did any of that, the kind of what he meant by things, did any of that affect your editing? Yes, there was definitely one towards the end. I remember something that like came back to me from from that book. But yes, I was I was kind of being informed by whatever little tidbits I could grab from wherever. And that book was very helpful. And then certainly there was a time where I was sort of in the dark putting this together. And then my first point of access was, of course, Tommy Kale. He's the master of this, so he knows every inch of it and every aspect of it. So he was my first sort of fountain of information. And then we put more together, put more together. And then Andy Blankenbuehler came in and he's sort of the keeper of a lot of the visual language, certainly all the choreography. And he would clue me into things that like Tommy's like, that's very nuanced. No one's going to get that. I would always kind of weigh that in the sense of I always want to show whatever his intentions, even if I don't get it. And even if I don't think that any of us are going to understand what it means there's something inherent in the, the, like, the art and the piece that I want to be respectful of. And so I would always err on the side of let's see that thing and let people experience it. And I don't have to know what it is. They don't have to know what it is. But there's something that you can absorb from that that will inform your experience watching this part, this thing. I listened to uh, Andy talk recently, and he's got so many references and so many 
layers to all of his choreography and all of the like directions of motion and all these things that it just you'll never be able to understand all of it. But that's why I would always kind of be like, let's show it and let that be part of the experience, because he's referencing medieval paintings and all kinds of Arcania, which is amazing. And in his brain. Can you think of a specific thing like that, that he said, oh, you should get that in because this person is, I don't know, the direction of their body movement is. Yeah. Talk to me about a specific. There was one in Quiet Uptown and it's sort of the transition point where uh, Eliza sort of starts coming back to Alexander Hamilton. The ensemble was set up a lot of this to represent America and the people watching. And there's a version where they're kind of a jury judging Burr and judging the situation and judging how America is unfolding. There's a moment where the uh, ensemble is moving in a specific direction around the turntable. And they're in these sort of contorted positions. There's a moment where the women start leaning forward and the men catch them. And he calls it, the women are vomiting. And I was like, I didn't realize that, but that's kind of amazing. It's just like, this, they're sickened by the sadness. This heartbreak is too much for them and they're sickened by it. And the men pull them back. And then the entire ensemble and piece starts to rotate in the other direction. And what that meant was when it's rotating counterclockwise, it's a healthy position. When it's rotating clockwise, it's an unnatural experience and, and disturbing to a viewer. Maybe that's because of us reading uh, left to right or whatever our orientation is as a, as a culture. But when Eliza is about to come back and the healing is about to sort of begin, the direction corrects itself. And so we had to see that change. And it's really a very nuanced subtlety, but a very beautiful expression and, and something that had completely missed the significance of in the background and was happy to learn from Andy uh, that that was happening. Sure, but at that moment where that lyric is spoken, you could easily have said, oh, it's really important for me to be on this close-up of yeah. this character because they're saying something important. But then you learn, oh, I need to be on the wide shot because of how that speaks into the art. Exactly. And that's what we actually were in a, a close up at that moment originally, because it is this very wrought moment for Hamilton, Eliza, and a, a very transitional moment for those characters. And so as a filmmaker, I think my instinct was to be intimate with them. But I think there's a larger expression happening at all times in the show. And I certainly wanted to always be respectful of that. And Tommy would be a little bit bolder. and No one's going to get that. We'll push through. Forget it. You know, and I, OK, fine. You know, he, he would give me permission sometimes to skip those, but I would always try and sort of capture as much of what was happening on the stage as possible because I feel like it's all significant. It reminds me of the thing I've talked to multiple people about. It's like when you're in the mix, the sound designers want the sounds played as loud as possible and the <laughs> composer wants the music to be played as loud as possible. <laughs> the director probably wants the dialogue as loud as possible. And you're like, now what do I do? This is the same thing, right? The actors, you know, probably want, oh, give me the close-up, and the, and the choreographer's always going, give me the widest shot possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a hard, hard thing to try to balance, I'm sure. Definitely. With the balance and the close-ups, we were always trying to sort of not spoil that to make those close-up moments have more impact. And we were not trying to hide the fact that this was on the stage. This was a bit of a hybrid piece in a way. This was somewhere between a dramatic narrative film a documentary capturing of these nights on this stage and this other language of sort of choreography and almost music video. And we're sort of synthesizing all of these things 
to create an expression of what was beautiful about what was happening in that play on those nights and on that stage. That was the specific assignment and keeping that emotional and engaging being the primary concern, but also being respectful to all those other facets, certainly. You were mentioning the nights. Can you explain uh, what kind of source material you had? What was shot? The first show they shot was the Sunday matinee in its entirety with a full audience. And that was just the play as it would normally be. We had positioned cameras in the audience. And, and this was before I was even hired. I don't mean to say we, they, Declan and his incredible crew, Declan Quinn, who is the uh, director of photography, who he's incredible at capturing these things and what he was able to achieve in this setting constantly took my breath away. And just with the subtlety of camera movement and how he and his crew were able to like push in at the times, maintain focus. I mean, it's incredible. They had 15 minutes of rest in between the, the acts, but it's just an incredible feat. But it was the, the Richard Rogers Theater on Sunday, Sunday matinee. How many cameras? It was 10 cameras. There were about seven, eight really active positions. And then we had kind of those specialty ones, like you'll see that overhead occasionally and the behind the stage. You know, we use those very sparsely for very specific moments. There were about seven primary positions that we were sort of constantly cycling through from two performances, Sunday and Tuesday. And then in the interim, after Sunday, we wrapped, the show ended, and then everyone took lunch and came back in and we shot three or four specialty numbers where we, you get your steady cams and more nuanced close-ups for about, we did that for about 13 numbers. We did a few on Sunday night and then Monday is a dark day for Broadway. So we brought the cast back. No days off for you guys this week. We did the eight more numbers on Monday, being able to sort of really stop down. We, uh, they still ran the numbers in their entirety. Every expression of this was trying to achieve the live experience and the continuity of what that storytelling is and how that works for performers, for the show. And so that was Monday. And then Tuesday, we did a couple more numbers before the show, and they did the show that night. And that's our material. And none of these shows were ever stopped or anything like that. This was the, the show. This was this was so a Sunday performance with 10 cameras or so and a Tuesday performance with 10 cameras. And then two additional run-throughs of multiple or three additional run-throughs of just numbers using specialty cameras like SETI cams. Yeah, we did 13 uh, specialty numbers, what we called them, three to five takes uh, usually. If we had a steady cam present for one of those numbers, they would probably do two takes with the steady and two or three without. And then the ones without might have like a little bit of a crane. Tommy would bring that in for different moments. Like nonstop has some nice crane work and, and the Skylar sisters ends with a little bit of crane. So the crane was a part of when they weren't doing the uh, steady cam stuff. Did you ever uh, stretch or compress time or was it completely real time? I think we maybe nipped out a couple of frames. When, when Alex came in, he's got like all of the, the cabinet as they call them, which is Tommy, Lynn, Andy, Alex, they are all, just in general, the sharpest people and most artistic people I've ever met, but also just at their craft. It's just incredible how honed in they are. And Alex would be like, can we take two frames out of the space between those songs? It just, I know it wants to be faster. And I'm like, two frames, huh? And he's like, yeah, two frames. And I'd nip it out and be like, that's it. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. The show's the show. They did a lot of the sort of content-based editing before I even came in because they workshopped the, the the show for years. It had been off-Broadway in the public. It, they'd been doing uh, previews 
And that's them honing the show and in effect editing the show the way we would normally go in for content and try and expand or build a moment and uh, all of those things. So that was the show. Yeah, so I was just trying to find space inside of that construct to like give moments breath of their own, a visual space. And I, I would steal that usually by trying to come in maybe a little early on somebody's line or and hanging with them for a moment after it finished to kind of watch it rest or and in some cases really brief stuff like in satisfied i would just steal every moment of angelica i could find because renee is just so expressive and that's such an emotional song and like especially with renee in in satisfied she's just giving so much emotion but also it's it's sort of wedged in between thousand mile an hour lyric delivery, which is incredible. I would just try and get with her every time she was giving a little bit of that emotion. And I, I think there's just a couple of really beautiful, subtle moments where she's sort of off action. It's she's just introduced her sister to Alexander Hamilton. Her sister's overjoyed and he's found a Skylar sister to uh, bed down with. We'd already sort of seen the expression of that thing once in Helpless. And so this was an opportunity to kind of actually watch that experience on Angelica's face. And uh, and those are really quick pop-ins, but because Renee's so expressive, you get you see that emotion and it flies right at you, just like the song's flying at you. So it would generally be through, yeah, extending shots, uh, holding on shots a little longer, and just using rhythm, the rhythm of the show, to kind of get us in, get us out. And it, it, that's the feeling that you're using to sort of help you into and out of those moments. Since we talked a little bit about camera positions and, and some of the specialty camera stuff that came in on those days that were kind of off or the performances that were not full, talk to me about using those cameras, uh, especially the steady cam coming in for the close-ups. I think it should be obvious to most people that have a visual sense like, oh, that camera's got to be on the stage, you know, or the overhead camera is the other one. Those are the two that I'm most interested in. Well, the overhead cameras, they ran every time we we shot a number. So they were running during all the specialty. They were also running in the performances in front of an audience, I should say. Every performance was live. And it was just a matter of sort of how do you deploy those? Because it's a pretty disorienting angle. And so you don't want to take people too far out of the thing. One of my primary self-directives was maintaining orientation. You don't want to get lost in the stage where are these characters in relation to the other characters? And when you go to extreme angles, and even the, the steady to a degree, you kind of lose that perspective a little bit, and things kind of move, and you, don't, and you can get lost. And I never wanted the audience searching for where they were on the stage, because that would mean they're not paying attention to the storytelling, which is what's important here. And so where we used those uh, overheads were places like the Rewind, where that is a disorienting experience. And it also really highlights like how Binkley's lighting, which he has this incredible lighting cue, which converges all the lights around Angelica. And it just, to me, that like seeing that cue just shocks me and tells me we're out of time and space and what's happening. And so you get to highlight these sexy things that most people will never see. In the mezzanine, maybe you can kind of see that, but you don't really get that perspective. And so we're rewinding. We're we're out of time. You know, we can we, we can be disorienting here. We can take some uh, liberties, and then we used it again sort in the Reynolds pamphlet later on with uh, everyone dancing around Hamilton. They throw up the pamphlets into the camera, and that's kind of a crazy. Mo I remember Andy described that 
piece as his Tim Burton piece. And uh, it's definitely, you know, it's wild. You know, it's uh, it's just bizarre what's happening and crazy angles. So we had permission again to kind of get into a, a crazy perspective. And then we used it again in nonstop at the beginning of nonstop. It, this was the formation of America at this point. And so the, the overhead kind of told the story of these the characters coming into this circle and setting down chairs to build the first courts of America. And it was sort of, it gave a sense of the construction of the country and the foundations on which it was being laid. So it felt appropriate there. We've tried to be very careful because it, it can be disorienting. And then yeah, with the steady, it was, uh, again, it's actually, it is hard to get into and out of that, especially cutting from your, your standard coverage of the, of the shows, going from a very wide perspective to a very tight perspective is very dramatic, but it can be jarring. So you kind of, I would try and kind of use some sort of motion to kind of cross those lines. Uh, the first time with Hamilton's entrance, it was uh, there was some ensemble dancers who crossed in front of him. And that motion to me kind of continued from the wide into that presentation and sort of made it feel a little bit more fluid. But you also want to call attention to this is our this is our central character. This is Alexander Hamilton. You feel a little emboldened to go into those kind of shots and you want to highlight those moments. The only other person we highlighted in that first number with the Steadicam was Burr. And we come to him at the end after Damn Fool who shot him because we're like, yeah, this is the other guy. <laughs> you know, uh, Yeah. Again, we, we came to it in Skylar Sisters is there entering, which is such a gorgeous, colorful exuberant scene, definitely you're playing with where do we come into this? And I sort of let them enter before going to it because there was still a lot. First of all, there was a lot of stage activity that we wanted to track before their entrance. And then once they enter, you kind of come to them and like, these are the girls. There's some more of our favorite people who are going to be watching for the next two hours. So everyone gets psyched. They're so expressive and beautiful in that. And you kind of, you know, those moments where you can let it open up into that full color spectacle is really exciting. And honestly, it I, I, you could watch those Steadicam takes all on their own. There was uh, a moment even in Alexander Hamilton before we uh, opened up on Hamilton where the Steadicam actually followed Eliza onto the stage. And there was this gorgeous light that came in and just a perspective no one will ever see. Tommy and I would just like oogle over that and just be like, God, what, what can we do with this? But, you know, it just wasn't the story. It wasn't telling us anything about the story. It was just a beautiful distraction. And you, you want to eliminate beautiful distractions, unfortunately. Yeah, that's for an interesting idea is that you, you know, it's, that's killing your babies, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> that's a very hard thing to do, especially if the director is like, I want, we have to have that shot. Luckily, you weren't that put in that position, but we both knew that would never uh, live. But we both were like, "God, can we? Can it be in the trailer? Like, where can this go?" You know, it just ultimately it just doesn't really tell you anything. But it is that it's you know it's there is something so exciting about being on that stage and being on those boards with those performers. Honestly, if we had done too much of that, it would have spoiled the thing. So you you use it only for the targeted moments where it's really important. Otherwise, the milk goes bad and nobody cares anymore. What's the deal with multicam and not using multicam? I'm assuming that you were cutting multicam all the time? Absolutely, yeah. I relied on multicam with this. That's not to say that I didn't watch it as individual cameras. Junior, my assistant, would go through and sort of multicam all the, the performances, a gargantuan task. I, you know, I, I didn't even really get under the hood and ask him how he was doing. I like that kind of stuff, but I was like... 
I don't know how it's happening, but thank you. You're magical. Just keep f- feeding me these extremely impressive multicam sequences that are like an hour long. We would take those and sort of divide them up like scene by scene. And so we would divide those up and create like little scene stacks. And I would just have him kind of stack each multicam take on top of, you know, so there was usually, there was always two at least, two multicams of 10 cameras. And then on top of that, any specialty stuff. And I would just sort of do it in order. I had like Sunday was video one, Tuesday was video two, take one of specialty would be video three and on, 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 on. And I would go through and I would break them down by song because also there's sync drifts. You know, it's, it's, these are live performers and some, some of the songs and certain parts of the songs are to a click track. So they were pretty steady every night, but there's entire uh, patches where the vocalists are in an emotional moment and you let them dictate the tempo. And so I would go through and like cuts first to sort of sync everything up. So I would have your basic like assembly of where, what everything was. And then I would go through the 10 cameras and isolate each one and watch through. Some were easier to sort of scrub through because, you know, some were from like weird canted angles in the uh, above the balcony that I knew I, I would only use for specific things. And I could kind of hunt through and be like, what does that moment look like there? No, no, no. But of the like featured camera work from the front of house, I would scrutinize each camera and kind of go through one at a time and mark and make cuts where I thought there were moments that were appealing and, and significant and that gave me some kind of emotional response. I would kind of do that for each take, 10 options on the first take, t- 10 options on the second, probably five or six on the first take of specialty, five or six on the second. And then I was sort of just weigh which ones were telling the story for me at that moment. And then Tommy would come in and we'd kind of go back through and and he'd be like, what's the H camera doing right here? And what's G doing over here? And we kind of went through and got to know our cameras, got to know where our positions were. And you could kind of get a feel for where things were going to be after a while. I love going through footage like that because one, you don't know what you're going to miss if you don't go through every take in its entirety. When I'm working on narrative stuff, I watch pre-rolls and after cut because you never know. You might get a really natural moment from a performer just like nervously thinking about their lines or something. But also it gives you intimacy and it gives you a familiarity with, especially with this dense piece of lyrical content. It's like I'm listening and experiencing the play 20 times before I'm making editorial decisions. So I know the scene. That's really helpful. And are you using that thing that your assistant created for you as a source or are you duping it and editing editing that? Uh, You know, I thought I would be working with that sort of in like my source monitor and just doing like swapping like sort, but it's challenging because you don't get the same playback options when it's in your uh, source monitor. I'll take a screenshot of my timelines for you, but they look like freaking player piano charts, 10 high video tracks of just like a thousand cuts and like, it looks like madness. You might think I'm a crazy person after you see them. This is such dense content. There was never a point where I knew we wouldn't go back and re-examine things. And in fact, uh, we did. Our fine cut essentially was from October 2016, which was just a few months after they shot. I think they shot uh, uh, in August, maybe. Or no, no, they shot in June, sorry. Uh, it was October to about April that we cut our, our first fine cut. And then it kind of went into a vault for a little while. And, and then uh, once it was sort of sold, 
Disney gave us the opportunity to go back in and look at the thing again and, and re-examine some of the uh, of our choices. And I went back to those stacks, believe me. I, I was very thankful for having those stacks of options because it's a unique and really wonderful luxury to be able to go back to a piece after you've stepped away from it for a while because you kind of a little bit forget why you made certain choices so you you watch it as a as a viewer a little bit and you say why why that you know what's this and and uh tommy and i sat down in january of this year in a beautiful theater at harbor pictures and watched the thing for the first time in a while and kind of compiled our lists of things and like this and that and some of them are nitpicky but a lot of it was sort of like what have we learned over the years being collaborators working on Fosse Verdon together what have we learned as individuals as storytellers and what can we push what do we want to push further what feels gratuitous what isn't working and I think a little bit of it was you know when can we be more intimate when can we get closer I think there was a uh, a couple of moments where we were like, you know, can we push this emotion a little bit further and be a little bit more intimate here? And so we kind of compiled our lists and wrote that up. I went in for like two weeks in um, early March and I started cutting those things and trying things and just, just throwing new things. We knew we had a working film. It was really good already. We were really happy with it. But like, let's see how far we can push this thing and what can that be? It was incredible to be able to do that. Um, and I'm very thankful for that that luxury because, you know, every project you walk away from with sort of, you know, it's been taken from your hands at some point and you, you're like, if I just, if I just had one more day, if I just had two, two more weeks, if I just, you know, just a couple more, okay, if I could just make one change, <laughs> you're pleading with the with the gods, but uh, you know, usually it's not to be, and this was a very, very unique and lovely uh, exception to that. The number of people that I've interviewed who got a chance to do that are very few. There's only three or four or five people where it's like, oh, an actor got injured or a legal thing, and you get to revisit it, and every single person was like, that made it, like that ability changed it. And, and we knew we were going to go back into it. When we uh, put the fine cut away, we didn't really have a, an opening for the show. It kind of just faded in. We had the titles and stuff, but even as we were doing like the mix process, which was an incredible process with Alex and Nevin Steinberg, who's the sound designer for the show, and Tony Volante and his team at Harbor, who are just like incredible artists, all of, all of them. But when we went in there, every time we would sort of watch it down, and again, when you're in the mix, it's sort of this locked away thing. It's done in a way. The picture's done and you're just, as an editor, sitting there watching it and you're tracking how, how your storytelling is happening in audio and if all of the sound is present, how the balance is, where you want to locate things. We had a, a surround mix, so where are we locating sounds? The other part of me was just watching the opening being like, what is this? Like, I don't feel like settled in this yet. The movie experience differs from the stage experience. In the theater, you go to the theater with an energy and an enthusiasm and you know you're there with people and you're sitting down and the lights blink a couple times and you're like, oh, the show's about to start, the show's about to start. For Hamilton, the lights dim and a light comes out of stage right, shines across the stage and then Burr rockets out and starts the show and just, it doesn't slow down from there. In the cinema, that's, that's a lot. Originally, we didn't have the king in there and he does an announcement at the beginning. We talked a lot about that and well, we have the king, and he's like, well, the king is the, that's the first in the script. 
the king is the first thing. The first lines in the script are welcome to my sh- the welcome to my show bit. And it gets a laugh and it sets a mood and it does all of these great things. And so that was to me one of those things that really solved the problem of getting into the show. It was like we live in the theater for a little bit longer. We hear the king's voice. We put built a sound design under the Disney logo. Getting the, those elements is just something, you know, it really comes to life when you're like putting a, you know, a company logo, that's a movie. When we got that, that was a real opportunity to make it even more exciting. And putting that sound design was such, that was just so much fun to play with. The guys at Disney were so generous to like, they, yeah, t- do whatever you want, you know, take some chances. So yeah, and that kind of gave it, gave it a little bit of life and energy that I think kind of propels you into the beginning of the show and lets you watch the thing. But that was didn't exist. So we knew we were coming back into it and there was no credits at the end. So we knew we had more work to do, but actually getting back in there and not just putting those things on, but actually getting to like tinker a little bit under the hood was uh, really, really wonderful. Uh, you mentioned the Fosse Vern show. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved with this director and got this project. Well, it actually goes way back. I first really met all of these guys back when they were doing In the Heights. I, I was uh, working uh, I, with a producer named Andrew Freed, and we were working on a documentary about In the Heights. He's actually got a documentary coming, coming out this month, I think the 17th or 18th, about Freestyle Love Supreme, their other side project. Lynn and Tommy and Chris Jackson are all a part of. So he'd been kind of following Freestyle Love Supreme for a couple years before we did the In the Heights thing. And they were he was trying to figure out if that was a TV show or if it was like a webisodes. This was like the internet was kind of new for as like a media space. Webisodes maybe, I don't know. And that sort of never really evolved into anything at that point. But... In the meantime, they kept being like, yeah, Lynn's not here today. He's off working on his musical, you know, in the Heights or whatever. And then in the Heights was like, going to go to Broadway. And so Andrew was like, is it cool if we like cover this? Like, I want to follow you guys and watch this process. And they were generous as they always are back then and generous now. Generous enough to uh, let him in there with uh, cameras. And uh, we got a, a really great doc out of it. And um, we, we did a couple of uh, the numbers from In the Heights as well. So I think Tommy saw what we could do with live stage plays and turning them into edits and things that work on the big screen or small screen. From that, we sort of forged a relationship and with Joker, he'd come in and watch cuts with us and joke around. We'd kind of bumped around each other in the interming years. And uh, when it came time to do this, he had called me up to... Uh, the 42nd Street rehearsal space. Tommy took me into a side room and kind of talked me through this. And he said right then, this probably won't come out for five years. And I thought, no way. I, I'm sure, I don't care. Of course I don't care. I'll do, it, I'll do it no matter what. But I was like, there's no way it'll take five years. And if, if we hadn't pushed it up for uh, this release on the 3rd, it would have come out October 2021. 20, and that would have been exactly almost five years from when we started. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Jonah Moran. Whether you're working from home or in your facility, your media has to be secure, organized, and accessible by your whole team. Studio Network Solutions Evo shared storage servers now include Nomad, an easy-to-use utility to help media production teams work from home, on the road, or anywhere in the world. Evo shared storage servers provide ultra-fast performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing. Each Evo comes with built-in media asset management software, so you can easily search, tag, and preview all your storage. 
Evo also features backup and sync tools, so you always know your media and projects are protected. Plus, powerful integrations to improve your workflows in Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Media Composer, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off a new Evo system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo today. And now back to my interview with Jonah Moran. How do you break the scenes or your workload? I would break it down by song usually. Some of them do kind of run together like uh, Helpless and Satisfied. The first third of the show runs pretty much back to back to back. I I would kind of finish one and start just tinkering with the next one, sort of find that transition moment. What was that? You know, and start playing with those kind of things. And, And it would sort of just start building in front of me. But I had all of them as sort of separate scenes with those sinks and things that I was talking about where I would break those down and kind of evaluate it like that. But when it came to edit, I would start assembling chunks for sure right away. As soon as I was sort of like through a cut of a scene, how does this tack on to the next scene? And I generally took it in chronological order and just kind of built and built and built. Except I think I maybe started working on Room Where It Happened earlier because I knew that was like a big one and we had like a ton of coverage for that and I just didn't want it hanging over my head, honestly. I just like, uh, that's, there's a lot of work between now and when I get to Room Where It Happens and I want to like give that everything right now and just be like, have a version and then when I get to it, I'll work on it again. But like, let's let's get through a big chunk of like knowing what I like in that and then we can we can circle back later. But yeah, I took it. I took it pretty much one song at a time, and just kind of yeah, would build those transitions as they as they presented themselves. Like with the uh, the Steadicam stuff, I was always looking for some shot that would sort of take us from the end into the set, the next moment, and sort of serve as a little bit of glue to make it all just feel connected and not disjointed at all. And frankly. Unlike when you're building scenes for a normal scripted movie or TV show, it was all continuous, actually. Actually, separating it was harder than keeping it together in a way. Also, I mean, the other thing is that you have all the material when you start instead of daily. Yeah, and we're not taking it out of continuity or anything like that. We're just tackling it from the beginning to the end. And and it's the way they wrote the play. So it felt like uh, somehow that's what Hamilton wants, is to just be started and move through to the end you know that's the uh that's the experience with the exception as you said of the of jumping into the one thing first or yeah, deciding yeah. tell me a little bit about that I, I i'm really fascinated by that because i've done that too where i'm like oh i don't know if i'm ready to tackle this scene right i'm gonna I, oh this is too <laughs> yeah. early in the morning for this i'm gonna i'm gonna do this simple scene and i'll do this other complicated scene yeah after lunch or something. You gotta kind of follow your mojo a little bit. What are you up for? If there's something that's exciting me, I'll, I'll tackle it right away. Just because the scent is in the air and I wanna just keep pursuing it. You know, I don't wanna let that go away. I wanna let the fire or the ideas kind of come through right away. If there's something that like gets in my head or a song and like, I again, I was like reading the book, listening to the, uh, the cast recording on freaking repeat. And so if there was a song or a moment that I was like, what are we going to do there? I would dip in and check it out for sure. But in general, it was built in a linear fashion. You know, a, fr- a friend of mine, uh, uh, 
Meredith Coffers, uh, who's a producer, a great producer and a very organized mind, much more organized than mine. She kind of talked to me about a week into this. So how, how are you tackling this thing? I'm just, you know, cutting. So when's your first rough cut due? Oh, December, something like that. How are you going to get through all this stuff by then? What song are you on? I, was, I don't know. I'm just working on it. She said, and she went away and was like, made a list of all of the songs and was like, okay, you need to be on Room Where It Happens on November 16th and you need to be on this. <laughs> and that really, really helped. Um, uh, but I remember Tommy came in one day and was like, let's get into this scene. And I was like, well, we're supposed to be on Room Where It Happens by now. Like, I, I think it's, uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, we're going to blow through our deadlines. Like, and he's like, Jonah, don't worry. This, I, I can talk to people like this is this is my, this is my show. It's, it's going to be fine. You're in good hands. We're going to do it the way it wants to be done. And you just worry about that. And I was like, oh, thank you. I can go back to just stressing about the normal stuff. <laughs> exactly. How do I make Hamilton the biggest thing in the world, something that people can relate to and understand in a similar way or extrapolate what's beautiful about it in a cinematic space rather than in a live theatrical space? Good Lord. How did you collaborate with the director? How much were you on your own cutting a scene? And then how were you collaborating with the director? Any producers? You mentioned the choreographer. Who were the other people in the room where it happened? Those people were all in the room where it happened at various times. The way it generally works and the way it worked here is you kind of go away as an editor and you work the scene. You kind of create what's uh, like generally known as an edit cut. When you're working in longer form, like, television or movies, you generally do a full pass as an editor and then kind of often, the director often checks in, where are we with this, where are we with that, but you often do like a full pass. This we were sort of working more in just like chunks, like scenes and stuff. Based on Tommy's availability, he would check in usually in the beginning, maybe once a week, whatever frequency he was available essentially. Anytime he would want to come by, I would say, please come by. Yes, 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 yes. Because every time he was in the room, everything got better. And it just gives you clarity to bounce ideas off uh, off of somebody like Tommy Kale. I've heard him call himself a coach, and I think he is that, but he's also, because he knows how to bring stuff out of you and make you believe in yourself in ways that you might not otherwise. But he's also like the smartest guy I know and able to bring so many ideas and guide you and pull you back and show you things and tell you things about his show that you just might have missed. So every opportunity I had to work with him, I was like, yes, please, please, please come back. Come back. Come back today. Come back. You were here at 10. You have to go for a lunch thing. Come back at two. Let's do it again. But, you know, when I was uh, just in the room where it happened alone, we actually, because of security reasons, Junior, uh, my assistant, had to be in the room with me. So we, our media never, like, left the room. We either, like, locked the door, left our cell phones out uh, at the front desk of the facility we were working at, and we're like sequestered in this room together. And so I, I would just go through a scene and then kind of watch through with him and be like, is this the way we do it? You know, da, da, da. We, and we learned a lot just by kind of sitting back and watching what worked and what didn't work. And a lot of the initial work, just going through those timelines the way we were doing, it, it was a little bit more cutty and like uh, trying to get too much in. And it was just, some, uh, I think, a, a largely an exercise in sort of stripping away what you don't need and getting to the meat of what really is important in telling the story and letting the eye settle on the beautiful things that are happening in front of you, as you do with uh, with any project. But yeah, especially with this, because, you know, we had so many options. What starts to happen at the beginning is a lot of those options just tr get in there and then you kind of Get, it, get those ones out. We don't need all of those. I remember sitting with uh, Junior 
on uh, Wait For It. We'd gone through it, and it was kind of, uh, Wait For It's such a beautiful spare number anyway. It's just simple, perfectly simple. But, you you know, you want to be in close with Burr because Leslie's so emotional and perfect in that number. But, you know, there was just, like, too many cuts, and it was like, God, we're getting in there with him, but, like, it's just distracting me. Like, I just want to experience this amazing moment. So it was just like putting in and taking out and mostly just taking it out, taking it out and finding what it was. Once Tommy and I had our cut that we were kind of getting happy with, then Alex came in uh, next and checking the music and checking where things were. And Alex was like very, very generous and lovely that first time and just kind of like, this is cool. And I know in the back of his head, he's like, I can't wait to get into the mix. We had a certain amount of control over the mix in the offline environment, but not a lot. We could, uh, we, I was mostly working from just a stereo mix down of the performances. Um, and we had all the mics, over a hundred mics of 10 mics, I think on the drums and audience mics and mics at the foot of the stage, every performer, obviously. So just so much sound to deal with. So it's just, that was it. That was a unwieldy amount of stuff to actually have in the timeline. I would be like, we need to hear this this lyric better. Junior, can you pull that, like the Alexander Hamilton mic for this line and we'll just pop that in and boost it. And we would sort of do that only on a per need basis kind of thing. So you're really, the audio was a, just the stereo mix? Largely. Mostly. I mean, there were, there were areas where there was, it was much more and we're creating better balance with the ensemble and things like that and actually working those kind of things. But largely it was just that that mix and kind of finding ways of like bringing it. Uh, mostly it was finding like audience because that mix was very stage uh, uh, centric. And uh, so we were trying to bring in the presence and what is the balance of audience to the stage work. And we wanted to feel the audience. We never like cut to the audience. You know, it's not like a comedy show where there's la- guys laughing in the audience. But I was thinking about there is a moment for the audience. There's a couple of them, but the one that I can think of the most is uh, the king singing and he says, I'm so blue and he stomps his foot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the lights go and the audience laughs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear the audience. And when the king enters, we did the back of the house camera. And part of that is that the king's performance is an interaction with the audience. He's talking to America there. And the audience is America in this case, you know? And he's saying, he's basically lambasting them for being such cocky little pricks, you know? (laughs) And they're loving it, laughing, eating it up. But that's the interaction there. So the audience was, especially in the King numbers, the audience is a huge part of those numbers. So so yes, they're they're much more present in a way in in that. And it's also a much more raucous sort of interaction there. And it's just him and them. And so... There's audience reactions during my shot that you can't hear because the entire ensemble is singing and doing things that are way more important than hearing whatever the audience is doing. And when it's just the king and just the audience, then it's more of a conversation. So on a scene like that, you might ask, hey, can you pull in the audience? Definitely. No. We're going to enhance that. That was an important part of those scenes and making sure those takes match up and that the energy is just right. We never boosted anything or pulled in canned audience or anything. It was always like, can we just, what else is there from that laugh? And maybe we'd look at what the laugh was from the first night, what the laugh was from the second night, but we never pulled in anything fake. It was all real. So then the choreographer had to come in at some point? Yeah, so then Andy came in, and again, that was like another masterclass in the show. We needed to be dead on in room where it happens there because that's where it's all lining up. And I was like, I think subconsciously I knew that because that's what was happening on the stage. And so that was the shot that captured the most perfect iteration of what we were looking at. Um, And that's always what we were trying to do and certainly what I was trying to do. What's the best way to see this moment? There's a, a moment in Your Obedient Servant where Hamilton and Burr's conflict is kind of 
escalating and escalating. And the ensemble is doing this lean thing where they're sort of leaning in towards the action. I had been a little tighter and he's like, no, we need to see that lean again. It's like amazing. And, it, I, and, and the lean definitely gives you this focus, this attention and the whole country kind of drawn in. And again, I think it enhances the tension more than anything that like this is all hanging on this battle right here. There's just so much detail in the way he puts together his choreography and his uh, stage pictures that uh, it was that was really uh, wonderful education in the play. The interesting thing you pointed out, which I think is is great, is that so much of it was correct because you're both telling stories and this, you're seeing it as a storyteller, he's seeing it as a storyteller in a way. And so some of those choices should have intersected, you would think. Yeah, in fact, after Andy left, Tommy said, that's the fewest notes I've ever heard Andy give. <laughs> wow. Um, I, which I felt like very, very honored and very lucky and very happy to hear that because the opinion of each and every one of the cabinet, uh, uh, did I explain what the cabinet was? No. The cabinet is Lynn, Alex, Andy, Tommy, but it's basically the creative team that built this thing uh, over these years. The insights of each of each member of the cabinet were invaluable and, and welcome. Uh, so anytime they had a note, I wanted to figure out a way to incorporate and address and happily did so. I remember a friend of mine told me a great story about a, a director who gave uh, one of his associates a note that was, don't be afraid to start over. <laughs> we were like, Jesus Christ, that's tough. <laughs> uh, really good advice, but probably not wanted advice. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, so, you, so nothing? You didn't like any of it, huh? <laughs> you press space bar at the end of the scene and it's just, mm, don't be afraid to start over. <laughs> okay. That that could be the least notes you've ever gotten on a scene, or that. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah, true. It, there was only a single note for the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just one note. Yeah. Start over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you talked about um, this uh, book that you had a lot of notes in it, and the the thing. Was there any other studying that you did, or the musical was the uh, the study? I don't think I took a subway or walked out of my house a single day from the day after or maybe the hour after I saw the show for the first time until we finished cutting the first fine cut. So I probably listened to that thing on repeat from August maybe 5th or something through late April. And, and then I, when we put it away, I sort of cleansed myself. But the way I cleansed myself was I went back and listened to In the Heights on loop for <laughs> a while. <laughs> I sort of trickled back into Hamilton uh, a few months ago. I was finally excited to re-engage it. And then, you know, here we are. So I think the, the cycle for this felt like organically perfect in some way. That was my study was listening, watching the show. I was uh, fortunate enough to see the show five times in New York just to study it. That was sort of the entry point was, you know, watching and studying the show the first time, especially because you kind of go in the um, things that emotionally hit you there are the things you know you want to convey emotionally to an audience ultimately. Um, so, Did you take notes at that first viewing? No, I didn't, mostly because I felt it would be incredibly obnoxious <laughs> sitting, <laughs> yeah. sitting next to people who paid like $10,000 for their seats probably. And uh, I'm just sitting there with like a, a pen and pad just like scribbling away like, oh, yes. Well, I was thinking about your iPad. <laughs> Honestly, that's how I would have done it. With, and then the light comes on. No, I was uh, discreet enough not to take notes then, but I was like <laughs> mentally logging kind of all, all of the experiences. That's part of why I, as I left the theater, 
I, I was like downloading the sound, the, the cast recording <laughs> so I could start cycling through the songs and remembering what I remembered from them. Mm. How much of them wanting you to be an editor on this do you think is because they knew the, the way that you collaborated instead of the way that you edited? That's a very interesting question. I think that's probably a significant part of it, actually. I think that's how, how Tommy approaches everything, actually, is through the people, not through the work. And knowing the passion that people will bring to it, I think that's probably why he was interested in me in the first place. You know, I, I think he'd seen versions of me doing this kind of work in the height stuff. I think it was, you know, just sitting and having a conversation and talking through what this process would be and what this play wanted to be and what this movie wanted to be. And I think I think you're exactly right. I think that is a large part of how he deals with everybody. Um, I've seen it in the way he talks to his collaborators in the cabinet. I've seen it with the way he talked to Andrew Freed, the producer I was speaking about earlier. I think Tommy in particular is somebody who just values people's spirit and their emotional contributions. I, I'm, I'm certainly happy to give anything I can to him and in, in the effort to help him make a piece like this. So... And in, in the Heights was supposed to be out this summer, right? At the movie a feature film or something? Yes. I think they've cut it and finished it, but some things going on right now. And so I think they're delaying that and trying to find a time. And I think they want to make sure that that is seen in a theater. Um, so I think they're, I think they're delaying that until it, that can happen. I think, I think they've actually officially delayed it till next summer. Yeah. It seems like a summer movie. I mean, not like a, yeah. like a blockbuster type movie, but the kind of movie that you want to see in the summer. It's about hot days in <laughs> Washington Heights in New York City during the summer, you know, breaking open uh, uh, fire hydrants and uh, setting off fireworks for the 4th of July. Th those are like central pieces in the movie. I mean, in the play and I'm sure in the movie. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a summer movie. I keep getting uh, sort of sidetracked in the journey of presenting to the the collaborators and the cabinet members. Uh, the final final step was once we had gone through the first set of approvals was showing it, of course, to Lynn, that, which is like the most nerve wracking thing possible because he's the creator and the genius behind all of the words that, you, that you're listening to and obsessing over and the music that you've fallen in love with. He is probably the most generous audience member I've ever uh, encountered. And he, that's not to say he doesn't have notes, because he does. He knows this play. He wrote this play. This is his, this is his mind. So, so his insights were incredible and in invaluable, but he's just a gentle person and a lover. And uh, he calls out as he's watching the thing when he's excited. So his notes are mostly just right there while you're watching. You're like, he likes that part. This party maybe is shifting a little in this chair. We'll have to look at that. Uh, this is uh, this is how you just read the room with Lynn. How long had you been working before he saw it? I think he saw it uh, early January. So, you know, it's a few months, October, November. Yes, yeah, three months. That's a lot of work to go through and then go, here comes the proof of the pudding. Tommy and Lynn do share a brain a little bit. I, I had confidence that if Tommy's happy, I think Lynn's going to be happy and he's just going to, he'll have like his specifics. But if I'm making Tommy happy, I'm, I'm on the right path. Alex and Andy, they're just course correcting us, you know, like there's this other thing you might not have thought about and da, da, da. And they're like, yes, okay, we got to get that in, you know? And so that was just all those little, it's really, it was just a lot of course corrections. Once it was through all of those amazing hands. Like I had a pretty good sense that it would go well with Lynn, but you never know. And it's, and it's scary to sit in a room and show somebody their thing. It's always kind of like, what if it's not how they envisioned it? It was very much a relief to get through that and have him like, woo, occasionally. Any uh, specific advice you could give or tips on cutting 
this kind of a show or something with choreography, which you've done extensively? What, what are the things that go through your mind when you start into a, a dance number? The first thing I would say is just let the thing be what it is. You have to trust the material. You know, try and just stay out of the way of it as much as possible. It's a cinematic form, so you want to be expressive and make it emotional. But I think there's a tendency to overcut and over manipulate material. You have to sort of believe in the art and what it's doing and let that be on display because that's the reason it exists. Uh, it's the reason why it's important enough to document in this way. That would sort of be my advice. Then know when, when you want to step in and like put a little bit of a, a perspective on it. I still have a little bit of consternation about the like satisfied rewind section. I love it and it's visual and I feel it's expressive of that moment. But then I'm, I'm also just kind of like, ah, maybe we should just watch the stagecraft there also. But that's not the medium we're in. And the medium we're in is, is a visual storytelling medium. And that's when I feel like you want to use the tools available to you as a cinematic storyteller. That moment is an exciting moment. And so how do you express exciting moments? And, you know, that's when you have to think as an editor, how do you do that? You know, what's, what's, what's the most engaging way to sort of express this moment? Well, and, and, and I don't mean this in any kind of a negative way, but that's one of those places where I... I felt the editing like okay like yeah yeah this is a place where you can it's supposed to be confusing and it's the big rewind right you're like yeah this is the place to do those cuts the language that they're do they're working with on the stage is that they've broken the thing in a way you know it's like the play is going backwards right now something just changed and it's confusing and it takes you a second to kind of realize what it is that this came from my first viewing of the show when you're in the theater and that's happening, you're like, wait, what? Holy, wait, is it, are they going back? What is happening right now? Do, and it, honestly, until you're like dumped into the dialogue moments, I was like, no, I was like, I think it just went reverse. I think we're like <laughs> in a previous scene right now. Wait, that's definitely a previous scene. I've heard that before. Like, oh my God. And so it's, so I just wanted to kind of, I wanted people to like kind of have that way. You're like, what is happening right now? It's kind of exciting and whoa, the lights and it's crazy. And, you know, so I, that's sort of, uh, I was just trying to express through editing there what I was feeling. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you did a great job of that. That was definitely the feeling I got from that scene. Yeah. You cut narrative stuff. Do you feel like when you were cutting this or when you, either you were switching back and forth into this project and out of this project, are you working different muscles or is it the same muscles? Is it just editing? It's still editing. When I work on documentaries, I want it to be dramatic. I want it to be emotionally engaging. And that's not to say like I want to manipulate truth, but my primary interest in working as an editor is in expressing things through the cinematic language. And that and that's an emotional language to me. And it's a, an intuitive kind of abstract language, but uh, it's an emotional language. And so you're kind of always trying to find what the character of a scene is, what the character of a moment is, and how to prop that up and enhance that. And, uh, and, and, and this is definitely, it's like exercising six muscles at once. It's, you know, like, tapping your head and rubbing your belly and all that you know, because you're not just uh, telling a dramatic story. You're trying to figure out if you can tell that dramatic story and also see Sasha in the background doing that motion that's going to carry you into the next thing. And that's true of narrative stuff as well. You're always looking for ways to link your shots and tie things together um, and making a fluid experience for the viewer. It was sort of like an extra thing of like, can I continue this dance move 
from that wide into this close up. And then I know I need to get back out because we have to see that whole stage picture. And I might not be worried about that if I were in a more uh, traditional narrative space. Also to your question about compressing time, in a narrative space, you can generally find an opportunity to extend a moment a little bit. So if you need to resolve something in one shot, you can hang there and then cut to a, a wide or a, a medium where the scene continues and you can find a way to sort of fudge that where it, the continuity works and, it, and the moment is as big and as long as you need it to be to resolve whatever's happening in your primary shot. I was definitely more bound in by the rules and the timing of what was happening on stage. The rule was, it's live. This is the stage play. And that is what we're showing. We're telling the story of Alexander Hamilton and this whole incredible period in American history, but we're also telling the story of what happened on that stage. That was definitely an edict that guided our, our choices. The interesting thing that you mentioned earlier that kind of ties into what you just said was in a narrative, you might say, oh, here's this big moment where his wife finds out he's che she's cheating on him or something. And we want to give some space for the audience to take that in. But in the workshopping of the play and in doing this night after night, they've already built in that time because they know the theater audience needs that time too. Absolutely. You know, when you have these contemplative moments with Burr standing center stage, just thinking, reflecting on what Hamilton's life has meant to him, feeling the impact of those things. And so the, the show has those moments built into it. It's just highlighting them and isolating them has a real power. That's actually the power of what this presentation is. When you're in the theater, you're, you can watch anything. In meaning you can look at a background actor or you can look at the person speaking. Yeah, absolutely. We're giving weight to specific things and we're focusing on what Burr's reaction to Hamilton endorsing Thomas Jefferson is. And that's a significant moment for Burr. And that's something you would do with a cutaway in normal storytelling. And that's why you have to be so careful with your close-ups because they have to mean something. When you cut to Burr for that moment, it's because that's, that's fracturing his soul. Like that's a moment that breaks him and turns him into a person that's willing to have a duel and kill this man, ultimately. And so using the close-up and the language of cinema there is helpful. It guides the storytelling. And that's something that's there on the stage, of course, because those guys all want you to notice that, but you might not. We have the sort of power and luxury to guide that and, and make it expressive in that way. And that, but that all comes out of what they built and how they built those moments into this entire tapestry, which is just incredible. Uh, I'm assuming I don't have to worry about plot spoilers <laughs> since this has been on the stage forever, but... I hope not. He dies. I get teared up when their son dies and she screams that anguish scream. What happens there in the edit? Or do you remember building that or or thinking, I'm just going to stay with them? I'm just going to... What, what was the editing process for that moment? It, it was that. It's that's That's a moment that you just... What's happening between them, between the three of them, between, you know, Hamilton, Eliza, and Philip, it's just, that's a moment you just want to stay out of the way of as much as possible. Uh, you want to be able to, more than anything, I just wanted to be in the right position to see the work that they were doing. You know, you want to see what Anthony is doing as Philip on the table there, you know, see his, his face and like the sweetness of that as it twists and fades from life. And 
Uh, Hamilton sitting there knowing he's responsible for sending him out there with his guns and Eliza kind of knowing that too, I think, and watching her son, trying to hold on to her son. It's heartbreaking, the work that all three of them did and the staging of that on that table at the front of the stage and the lighting, everything was, was perfect. So you just want to stay out of the way as much and let that, let that work be uh, absorbed. Yeah, that moment is played pretty much on that one three shot, right? A front front facing, fairly close three shot, but not close ups. It's not go into the mom's anguished face kind of thing. It's no, we need to see all three actors in their interplay. We experimented with going closer. We definitely experimented with all those things, but it's uh, you don't want to break the spell. At some point, it's sort of if you cut too much, it feels like maybe you're faking something. You know, there's a real tear that streaks down Pippa's face there. That's like. It's just amazing. It's just a beautiful thing to watch. And I didn't want to cut away. As an editor, I'll often try and like break a thing. I'll push it to where it's broken and then you kind of pull back again. I did that a lot throughout. I would do that. Tommy's a great uh, guide for that because I would like push things and sort of see like, let's see how far we can push this. And, uh, you know, I'd show it to him and if he liked it, it would be great. And then occasionally he'd be like, Jonah, (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd know I'd gone too far. Is the end of that scene, the stagecraft of the lights going down? Did you fade? I can't remember how that ends after she screams. The light does shift, but they sort of, the wheel, the... The The turntable? Turntable, thank you. Rotates them off to uh, stage right. And Angelica comes in and sort of begins the Quiet Uptown song about loss. Did you, during the course of this, look at any other filmed theater productions like operas or something? I'm trying to think of other theater things I've seen. Uh, Not specifically, honestly, because I... Didn't want to get like too dragged into other people's language and what that had been. My favorite is probably there's a, a live filmed version of Rent. Coincidentally, uh, Renee played Mimi in that. It was the first time I remember ever seeing Renee, and she is spectacular. So you should check it out for that, if nothing else. But Renee Elise Goldsberry, who plays Angelica Schuyler, of course, in Hamilton, he really brought in, again, the language of cinema and made and, and introduced it to the language of theater. And uh, it's a vivid, exciting telling of Rent, using perspective and the things that we use in cinema to, 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 to tell that story and to highlight things. You know, Rent has a, is another show that has just so much going on. And when you're cutting two characters saying lyrics, suddenly you're like, oh, that's what that's who's talking. That's what's happening. And it's it, and it's it focuses you in a way that's powerful. That's probably my favorite example of something like this. And it's a very different approach because Rent is a very different play. A lot of handheld stuff. It's very interesting to check out. But yeah, it sort of matches Rent's sort of gritty storytelling. Thank you so much for talking to me about this project. It's really interesting to hear the ins and outs of it and your decision making. And uh, one of my favorite quotes was just don't break the spell. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's it. Never break the spell. It it applies to every form of uh, cinematic and otherwise uh, storytelling. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this and thank you for taking the interest. That's it for the Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Jonah Moran. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. 
And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.